on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas here on Premier Christian Radio. This week we're thinking about journeying with God. One of the common statements you often hear in the church, especially from preachers, is this thought of asking Jesus into our hearts. And in a sense, that's a biblical statement. But I wonder sometimes whether it really captures what the life of discipleship is actually about. You see, inviting Jesus to come to where we are is really only half the story. The reality is that Jesus revolutionized the lives of people like Peter and Andrew and other apprentices of his with the invitation, come, follow me. You see, we're not just called to ask God to come where we are, but rather we're invited to travel with him. When you look back into the Old Testament, you see Israel, the ecclesia, the called out people of God. They were called to travel, to journey. This week, here on Lucas on Life, Journeying with God. Our loft is a disaster area. Suitcases that will never see the light of day again battle for space with piles of fading photographs. There are a few horrendous wrought iron table lamps, the design work of tortured souls, lamps that should never, ever have seen the light of day in the first place. Our loft looks like the aftermath of Armageddon. It was during my last excursion up in the rafters that I discovered my old-school football boots. Running my fingers along the tired, cracked leather, still caked with mud from years ago, I remembered one awful day in my inauspicious soccer career. The match itself had been a disaster for me. Ten minutes into the game, our sports teacher, come referee, had brought the entire match to a halt to ask me why I was playing in the position of centre-forward when I was supposed to be a defender. I blush easily, and that day I glowed like a traffic light as I walked slowly back to my right-back position. But the event that is really etched on my memory happened before the game itself, when the teams were being picked. Do you remember that routine from your soccer or netballing days? Two captains, impossibly intrepid athletes themselves, stand apart from a motley crew of potential teammates who were looking with pleading eyes, hearts crying, pick me, please. Obviously, the best players are snapped up quickly, leaving a depressing group of apparent misfits who become more desperate to be selected by the second. Just four of us were left, then three, then two, then me. One of the captains wrinkled his nose like he was viewing the last turkey in the shop and said, oh well, we'll take Lucas then, blushing time again for me. I'm not getting precious about this moment in my personal history. Excruciating as it was then, I don't think the experience has marred my psychiatric health. But as I sat in the half-light of the loft and held those old boots again, I remembered for a moment the shame of being the player that no one wanted, reluctantly chosen because nobody else was available. Then I recalled some words of Jesus that should cheer up any of us with less than brilliant Hi, sporting Sam achievements. You life, did not choose me, but I chose you. We, we find them in John chapter 15, verse 16. Ordinary, messed up people like loudmouth Peter and wandering Thomas, and even traitor Judas were picked out of the crowd and given the invitation that changed a lifetime, an eternity, not just 90 minutes, an invitation to journey with Jesus. They were chosen 
chosen to be his disciples, his apprentices, and he's picked us for his team too. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it, that he's drafted us onto his team? After all, he's the coach who sees every weakness we have. We may fool the crowds, but he sees our clumsy, pathetic attempts in sharp focus. We miss our goals, we find it so easy to foul, and he watches it all. He knows us, and he still loves us. In fact, he still likes us. And he's paid the highest transfer fee in history, his own life, his own blood shed, so that we could play on his side. The problem is knowing how to play on the Jesus team and how to journey with him. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I've often thought that it was easier for the likes of the Twelve because their selection was made by a physical Jesus standing right there and they literally had to put aside their nets or tax collecting and be with him for the travelling. For us, it may seem a little more complicated. Some suggest that discipleship means that we have to sell everything and give all we own away. But how can that really work? How can we follow Jesus in a world where ethics and goodness and values are scorned, where spirituality is fashionable, but where Christians often seem to get the red card? Is discipleship a lofty term that can really only be used to describe the martyrs of yesteryear or the suffering church of today? We'd better get this sorted out, because the Jesus who has picked us has commanded us to go and develop other apprentices for the team. Again, you read about it in Matthew 28. As we look at Jesus and discipleship in John's Gospel, we discover that the life of discipleship is not a dreamy ideal for desert monks and missionary pioneers, but it's a way of life that is accessible and available to all of us. If we're called to make disciples, that means that others should be involved in making us into disciples too. Here's All I Need is a very old song that celebrates the idea that we don't need anyone in our lives except God himself. It has a nice, lilting tune, but the idea is, frankly, theologically bankrupt. We do need other human beings in order to help us to become disciples, the fellow travellers that Jesus wants. That's why church is more than a singing club or a biblical lecture centre. It's to be the discipling community, the forge where people of character and significance are crafted. Personally, though, I think the discipleship ought to include volunteering to help clear up other people's lofts, like mine. Come on over. Look, there's a free table lamp in it for you. Hi, I'm Sam Hales. If you're enjoying Lucas on Life, you'll love the Profile podcast. Every week, we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith, and testimony. Here's Joyce Mayer. Anything that we give up for God, He gives it back to us multiplied so many, many times over. I encourage anybody to make whatever sacrifices they need to to be in the perfect will of God because there's no better place to be. Listen to the full interview with Joyce Mayer now on the Profile podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you get your podcasts from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. I'm Jeff Lucas. This is Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. We're thinking about journeying with God. I wish I'd been there. It was a hot Sunday evening. The pews were packed and it was time for the closing benediction. The minister, splendidly sombre in his black suit and stark white clerical collar, stepped up onto the platform and stood majestically in front of the open baptismal tank. 
Minutes earlier, a number of grinning new Christians had breathlessly shared their testimonies and then had stepped down into the chilly waters. Now it was just time to draw the evening to a close. "'The Lord bless you all,' said the pastor, smiling benevolently down at his flock. "'I'll see you all next week.' And with that, he stepped back straight into the tank. "'I wish I'd been there to see it.' Helpfully, he was unhurt and graciously joined in with the peals of delighted laughter as he beat a soggy retreat to the vestry. "'I love it when things go wrong in church.' I wish I'd been there too when that rather overweight and overbearing worship leader whose so-called worship leading style was to bark orders at the congregation demanded that they all lift their hands in worship right now. And then, as he lifted his hands in worship, his groaning belt buckle exploded and his trousers fell down to his ankles, revealing a rather voluminous pair of boxer shorts apparently manufactured by Mr Walt Disney. I'm told that members of the congregation were sticking Bibles in their mouths in vain attempts to contain their mirth. But my very favourite Things That Go Wrong in Church story took place in the USA at a large nativity concert. Our American cousins are famous for their church mega-productions, rented camels and donkeys, a full orchestra, and even the ability to fly angels across the church building suspended by wires 20 metres up in the air. The velvet-clad choir sang, eyes shining, the musicians played, note perfect, and the camels helpfully controlled their bowels. It was a beautiful moment, as at last the time came for Gabriel, Norman the hapless deacon who'd been volunteered, to appear, and the crowds gasped as he rapidly swept high across the auditorium, and then glorious disaster struck. The electric motor driving Norman's harness burned out and he stopped dead so suddenly that it began to swing wildly. And then, because of the momentum, the wires attached to Angel Norman's wings got twisted and he began to spin round and round, faster and faster. I wish I'd been there to see that angelic ceiling fan in operation. But consider the vivid picture of a man spinning round and round and round and round and round, and know that spinning is exactly the condition that describes many of us Christians. The spinning saints aren't overtly rebellious, out of fellowship, or prone to shake an angry fist at heaven. They're nice, good people, with heads filled with sound doctrines and hearts that are, as they say, in the right place. It's just that spiritually the spinners aren't going anywhere. Progress has halted. Growth has faltered. Their Christianity has become stale and static. It can happen to the best, this spinning. Consider a ramshackle band of Hebrew slaves who, around 3,500 years ago, cried out to God to deliver them from the barbed whips, narrowed eyes and gritted teeth of their Egyptian taskmasters. God danced once again into their history as a rescuer and redeemer, and the great journey, the Exodus, began. It was much more than a great escape. Those outcasts and fugitives became a chosen people, called to travel, to journey to a promised land. And initially, the journey was action-packed. The prince of Egypt, Moses, walked away from the good life of Pharaoh's palace in order to lead them. 
Their route wound its way through the supernatural and the miraculous as the obedient Red Sea stood up, impossibly, at Moses' command, only to crash fatally down again on the vast army that chased them. God himself was their GPS system, navigating them in the journey. As the Hebrews followed the pillars of fire and cloud, they discovered that God was uniquely the dynamic traveling king. What a contrast to the pagan religions of the day, which held no long-term hope for the future and no plan of anything. Paganism and the occult arts offered dark magic rituals designed to persuade the gods to give you a good crop that year. Manipulation for the sake of the immediate. But the Hebrews were called to follow the journeying God, the divine trekker who rode daily at the head of his people. The Ark of the Covenant would be kept in a tent as a living reminder of the God who was committed to tenting it with his people. Towards the end of the Judges period, the Ark was placed in a permanent structure, but the feeling remained that the proper housing for the throne of God was a tent. But the story of those early travellers did not end happily. As they doubted, grumbled and rebelled, they got more and more off course. God was still with them, but they would never inherit the promised land destiny that he'd prepared for them. The journeying God allowed them to spin out their days in the wilderness, marching still, but really going nowhere. A 40-year unmagical mystery tour. Even Moses was to die with the promised land just a distant horizon. The excursion ended in the sand. So what about us three and a half millenniums later? Many of us have known an exodus as we've stepped away from Egypt. We've walked away from godless, hopeless lives. Some of us have heard the call of the journeying Jesus who still says, come, follow me. Others who have sat slumped by the roadside far too long, who've been spinning their wheels, perhaps will stir once more and take his hand, a firmer grip this time. Perhaps this week the great adventurer will come and invite us to get rid of excess baggage that weighs us down or free our feet from the sand that so easily entangles, tripping us up just when we got moving. So what's it to be? Onward, upward to the promised land or meandering around in the sand? Progress or spinning? The journeying God warmly invites us to decide. Here's a couple of questions that might help us respond to that challenge. Are we still learning? Can we still be wrong? Or do we generally think that we've arrived in the place of rightness? And what have I discovered about God lately in my life? Maybe the questions will help. Whatever our reflections this week, let's be committed to keep on traveling. See you next time. Lucas on life.